our tagline is one hook, one line, one fish at a time. The, the reason we support those tuna fisheries is, is, I think it's both environmental and social. So, so environmentally, it's, it's the lowest impact on the environment. You know, you're not catching the sharks and the turtles and the other critical elements of the ecosystem that other commercial fishing gears do, but you're also having the maximum social impact on a place. That's Adam Dask, Director of Policy and Outreach at the International Pole and Mine Foundation, a UK-based not-for-profit organisation that supports small-scale, one-by-one fisheries around the world. These fisheries focus on providing high-quality, ethically caught tuna that both supports human life and well-being in coastal communities, but also supports fragile marine ecosystems. I'm Joy, and this is the Sustainable Jungle Podcast, where we speak to incredible people making change for the better. Today, Lyle and I are speaking to both Adam and Julie Thomas, a project manager at the International Pole and Mine Foundation, on the ground in St. Helena, a small island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We cover the destructive fishing methods that are decimating our ocean life, why the pole and line approach is a sustainable alternative, why it's not so black and white when considering different and opposing approaches to saving the world, like veganism and sustainable fishing, and if you are a tuna eater, how you can do so in a way that supports both coastal communities and marine environments around the world. You can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. And without further ado, let's learn about ethical fisheries. We have Adam joining us from the US and Julie joining us from St. Helena, a volcanic tropical island in the South Atlantic Ocean. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. Let's start with a little bit more about each of you. Adam, where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in a small town in Michigan. It's in the, the Midwestern US and actually on Lake Michigan. Um, so. I think that's where I kind of started to become so so passionate about the water and and kind of when you when you look at this massive lake every day it, it was kind of like an ocean I mean you couldn't see over the horizon so the sun would set over the lake every day and actually had small tides and nice beaches so I think I got the bug actually from from um, kind of where where I grew up and and I, my grandparents lived down in Florida so so a couple times a year I would go down to visit them and again kind of just would spend all of my time in the ocean swimming fishing. I actually got a little obsessed with fishing. I, I still am, I guess. And uh, I think that that uh, kind of the, the access to the water and the ocean and, and seeing the fish and loving fishing and, and all those activities kind of stuck with me through through my whole life. Um, you know, as a kid, uh, my, my room was covered in posters of, of fish. Um, I, <laughs> I would wake up early and uh, watch the flipper show. I mean, all, all the way to like an embarrassingly embarrassingly. Uh, old age, you know, in, in my teens and, and even <laughs> high school, I'd wake up at 6.30 and watch Flipper, you know, just to start my day to get me fired up. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that continued through. I studied marine science in university in North Carolina and um, kind of every job since then and, and uh, grad school, it's all been around, all around the ocean, around fisheries, around conservation and, and melding all of those things together. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to kind of focus my, my career on, on that uh, interface of, of those issues and focus on ocean health and conservation and, and marine science and education. Clearly, you've, you've had a really super interesting career in conservation and ocean health, but that sort of stemmed from this love of the ocean and fishing. And many people would go down the lines of fishing and just continue loving fishing, but you went down the line of protecting the ocean. And um, I'm curious to know why. Why is it so important to you to protect the ocean? And Yeah, well, I mean, funny you should bring that up. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a fisherman. And to this day, I, I still fish quite a bit. And, you know, why didn't I go down the role of being a fisherman? I, th I think fishermen are probably the strongest and most passionate conservationists out there. Um, you know, that their livelihood depends on the ocean and the fish and the fish being around to feed their families, to, to, you know, maybe their kids will go into fishing. So, you know, and I, and I think we'll hear a lot from Julie as well. It's that, I mean, our best champions in the world are, are fishermen. And there, there's a bad rap, I think, because in a way, we, you know, these, these, the, the oceans have, I guess, been so industrialized. I mean, we, we figured out how to build massive ships and take huge amounts of resources and, you know, not go beyond the sustainable ability of, of the ocean to replenish itself and, and harm its, its um, you know, top predators, the, the sharks and the, and the bigger megafauna, the whales, the turtles, the, the marine mammals. You know, I, I, don't, I don't see it as a, as a black and white 
fishing is good, conservation or fishing is bad, conservation is good. I, I think that's actually part of the problem. So, I mean, I, th- I think working with fishermen and doing fishing in the right way is is the way we need to kind of ch- change our thinking if, if we want to have any success and long lasting impact on ocean health. And Julie, tell us a bit more about you. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Yes, I was born here on St. Helena. Um, and I think now that I've had the opportunity to travel, I don't think I would want it any other way. I couldn't agree more with what um, Adam is saying there, so I will um, elaborate a bit on that. But St. Helena Island, for a lot of people, I think will probably be somewhere they've never heard of before. So I spent all of my youth here on St. Helena. Um, I guess when I reached my working career, so much different to Adam. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I, the world was my oyster and I just went out there. And I think growing up on an island um, that's done um, the proper one-by-one fishing right from the beginning, it's difficult to know how the ocean can be exploited, I guess, by other uh, disruptable methods. So I've always grown up in a pristine ocean. So St. Helena is so small, it's only 47 square miles. So island life, I'm an island girl. And even though I've traveled, um, I've seen a bit of America and I've seen the UK, I've worked in the UK. I went to our sister island, Ascension Island, been to South Africa. For me, the ocean, not seeing the ocean was difficult for me because we take it for granted when you grow up on such a small island as St. Helena leaving the island made me appreciate what we have here. But um, returning to St. Helena, I met who is now my husband, and he's been a full-time commercial fisherman for over 20 years. So I guess my real love and understanding of what fishing is and how um, important it is for coastal communities such as St. Helena, um, it came to the pinnacle of my interest about 15 years ago. Adam, just focusing on International Pole and Line Foundation, for the benefit of the listeners, could you give us an overview of of what it is and what it does? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the the International Pole and Line Foundation is a UK-based charity, and we're really focused on small-scale, sustainable tuna fisheries. And and our, our tagline is one hook, one line, one fish at a time. And the, the reason we support those tuna fisheries is, is, I think, it's both environmental and social. So, so environmentally, it's, it's, you know, the lowest impact on the environment. You know, you're not catching the sharks and the turtles and, and the, other, the other critical elements of the ecosystem that um, other commercial fishing gears do. But you're also having the maximum social impact on a place. The, the workforce is the biggest. You're, you're, have, um, you're supporting small-scale local ownership. You're su- supporting fisheries that are happening in, in communities that have a very strong cultural connection. So, so it, in a way, it's, it's just a, a simple way of connecting to product and communities of people throughout the world by offering a, a sustainable seafood choice and promoting a c- sustainable seafood choice. So our organization really tries to connect the dots through the supply chain. We, we work with the fish, fishing communities and the fishermen to strengthen their practices and help them g- get better products. Uh, we work with scientists to, to help understand the fisheries and understand the, the social and economic impact and benefits of these fisheries. And then kind of on, on the other side of, of the equation, we actually work with the companies that supply that fish or want to supply that fish to consumers or to, to other companies in the supply chain, help them connect those dots, help them pr- promote these products. And then another important role that, that goes around all of this ecosystem is on the policy side. So working with decision makers, policymakers, governments uh, to to promote and protect these these smaller scale fisheries, which historically haven't really had a voice or any say in how these international tuna fisheries are managed. You know, it, it's it's difficult to say in, in one or two lines exactly what we do, but it's really about supporting this ecosystem of small scale, socially beneficial, um, environmentally sustainable tuna fisheries and building the, both the supply and the and the demand for those products. Adam, could you give us an explanation of the, the different types of fishing of tuna and in particular what one hook one line, one fish actually means? Sure, be, be happy to. So I guess the, the primary fishing gear in terms of volume uh, around the world is called pursing fishing. And, and pursing fishing is, is conducted by, by you know, very large vessels that, that have you know, pr- pretty massive nets, you know, uh, um, up to a mile long and, and a thousand feet deep. 
and they will um, basically set their nets around entire schools of of tuna. Uh, and you're you're talking about taking thousands or, or tens of thousands of of fish at a time. And and if you're you know doing that, you're also getting other species in in those schools. You know you you can get turtles and manta rays and um, sharks. Uh, and, and really taking these these fish out at a massive scale, oftentimes before they've had a chance to to reproduce. Um, so you're having that impact on on the stock, on that on that fish stock's ability to to regenerate um, it, itself as well. But that that catch method probably catches upwards of you know 60% of of global tuna every year, and and it's quite advanced technology wise. I mean these, these are very very large vessels. Um, some of them have their own helicopters on board to to find schools of fish. Um, some of them have the, these um, drifting devices they set in the water, you know, h- hundreds of them to attract tuna. And they, they, they're, you know, they have GPS on them as well as sonar. So, um, you know, f- from, from their wheelhouse, they can monitor kind of where, where the various tuna schools are around an entire ocean area and just go from school to school to school. So it's become a quite efficient operation, but, but also one that if it's not managed properly, will we'll have kind of major ocean scale um, implications in terms of the, the, the stock health and impacts on other species. Uh, the, the other major fishing gear, before I get into one by one, is longline. And longline um, fishing is, is basically what it sounds like. Um, a, a boat will put out a very long line. Um, and in extreme cases, these can be 60, 70, 80 miles long and with you know thousands of baited hooks. And then they'll, they'll put the line out, let it sit in the water for some amount of time, and then pull it back in. And when they uh, pull it back in, you know, you'll, you'll certainly have some tuna, but, you know, you're going to have other species as well. And, and you can have, if it's not done right, you can have massive impacts on sharks, on turtles, on um, marine mammals, on other vulnerable species. And and this fleet, um, you know, has has a history, unfortunately, of not being monitored very well. So, in, in, you know, kind of by international regulation, you're supposed to have a a scientific monitor to, to be able to tell management bodies kind of what's happening in the catches uh, on, on 5% of your boats. And that even, even you know, five out of 100 seems like a pretty minuscule amount, but, but I mean, our, our global longline fleets can't even um, get up to that level. So there, there's very little idea of what's actually happening on these vessels. And so th- this is why the, these fleets have been connected to um, shark finning, to, to um, labor abuses, to, to other unsavory activities out in the ocean, but but longline fisheries, um, they, they'll target kind of the the larger tunas, so that the yellowfin and the big guy and the bluefin often that go to the the um, you know the sushi market or the the fresh and frozen, um, more like tuna steaks kind of market, uh, but but again these are kind of they take place globally around the world um, on the high seas in in you know the ocean zones of, of many coastal countries around the world, and then the third type of uh, tuna fishing is what we would call a one by one. And so that that's kind of a category that, that encapsulates these smaller scale operations where, where you were, you are just catching one fish at a time. You know, it's one hook, one line, one fish at a time. Think about cartoons where you, you see guys throwing or characters throwing, throwing fish over their shoulder um, using a bamboo pole. That's actually still happening. <laughs> and, 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 and it's happening in, in um, a, a diversity of, of countries around the world, lar- largely in the developing world. The, the hot spots for those types of fisheries are the Maldives, Indonesia, and Japan, where, where you have, um, I think, fisheries on the order of you know, 80 to 100,000 tons per year of just, just catching fish one at a time like that. But you can also you can also catch fish one at a time. Other methods, you can just use a, a rod and reel. Like when, when you just think of kind of recreational fishing, you know, that there, there's commercial fisheries that operate that way. You can use just a hand line or, or that's what it sounds like as well. You have you have a line that you throw over to the side and, and use your hand to, to pull it up when a fish bites. Uh, and then there's a, a method called trolling where your boat is moving through the water and, and you might have some lures being pulled behind the boat. And when a fish bites, you you pull it in. And, and I think the major distinguishing factor of, of this type of fishing versus others is, is it's you know, it's it's really low impact. You know, you're you're not you're not catching a whole stock. The gear is actively tended. You know, the, me, meaning that when when a fish bites, you pull it in, and if it's not what you want, if if it's some other species or it's a you know a a, a vulnerable species that you want to let go, you can do that, and it's going to live. Um, even though those 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 instances of non-target catches are low, you know, when they do occur, you can put them back in the ocean. 
And and so you know that between the environmental and and the social impact of what we call you know these one by one fisheries, they they really do stand apart from from you know a, a, a variety of of angles. And yeah, these these types of products are available in in the tin at the sushi counter and and in, in the steak form, kind of all. All, all products, you can find one-by-one one options. I'm just wondering, do we have an idea of, of the illegal fishing market and, and what sort of impact that's having on the ocean? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a huge concern and, and also, I think, a remaining big question mark um, in, in the world. And I think, I mean, Julie can speak to examples that, that they may have heard of in, in St. Helena of this, what they call, you know, pirate fishing or illegal fishing. It's it's certainly a, you know an issue, and especially in um, developing countries or countries that don't have the resources to to police and have vessels out, you know, covering covering their whole ocean area. I mean, it's a really really difficult thing to to police. Again, on the technology front, there are with with improvements in in satellites and and um, various services out there that are that are able to help coastal states kind of detect. And and go after these these instances. It's still not perfect, but I, I would say, you know, I'd like to think at least that that the uh, the occurrences of, of this are are going down. But it's it's still a a threat. And whether it's unmarked vessels or or you know, a, when you say pirate fishing, that that really means that the, that this vessel is not associated at all with with a specific country. Um, that has a very specific kind of definition um but it's not just pirate fishing it, it can be boats for that that are you know re, you know registered in in countries and that may be selling into um major markets um you know i, th- I think the european and the u.s markets at least have have you know gone quite quite a distance to eliminate the opportunities for those illegal products to get into their supply chains i mean they, they require some pretty sound traceability meaning you know any product that comes into the U.S., they, they, you know, it needs to show, you know, what vessel it came from, show the registration number of the vessel, make sure that it was operating in good standing, that it was legal. And, and the same goes for the EU. They've had laws on the books for, for even longer than the U.S. in this regard. But there, there's still quite a number of markets. You know, seafood is a, is a global commodity and, and consumed around the world. And, and not every market, you know, has, has these uh, tools in place to, to enforce yeah, I mean, just to, to add a bit of color to that story, Lyle and I were in Mozambique uh, around July last year, and we were lucky enough to sort of do the wild dolphin swim with the local conservationists or citizen scientists, as they called themselves there. And it was so interesting talking to them. You know, they're super worried about this, these trawlers destroying their local do- dolphin populations, but also the local fishermen are just totally being put out of the market. They, you know, th- what they used to do to feed their families in terms of fishing, they can no longer do because of these these nighttime trawlers that have come in and basically decimated their entire fisheries. So, uh, I can yeah. t- totally oh. see the argument for having regulated. Um, and and carefully managed fisheries. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a uni- not a unique story, and it and it's so sad. And th- this is why we work so hard to, you know, not o- not only empower the the fishermen, but make sure their governments are supporting them. And and you know, you know, the, the, it's a hugely valuable sector. And, and maybe it's not you know the, the biggest money wise, but in terms of food security and livelihoods, and and some of these things that can be a little bit untangible, like the importance of the fisheries to local um, culture and things. Um, you know, they, they, it's really important to protect these these fishing communities around the world. And, and you know, if governments don't have the resources to, to protect their their waters and, you know, it's, it's going to have a cascading effect and, and unfortunately a, a really devastating one. Adam, I, I just want to quickly turn back to International Poll and the Lion Foundation. We understand it's been going since 2012 and there are an impressive number of members on the board and some very well-known names in the sustainable tuna space. Um, But as a precursor to hearing Julie's story, could you share some of the impact that the foundation's work has had over the last uh, seven years? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, over, over the last seven years, I'd, I'd say we, we've grown from, um, you know, having a handful of, of UK based companies to in, involved and, and really just working in the Maldives to 
having a, a global network and, and ha- actually having a global identity of, of these one-by-one fishing communities around the world. And we have, I think, 65 members now. That includes companies and, and um, fishing communities from uh, Japan, Indonesia, Maldives, South Africa, St. Helena, Brazil, the U.S., Canada, uh, Curacao, uh, the Canary Islands, the Azores, Spain. So, so I mean, we we are becoming and, and giving a voice to this sector that that previously, you know, had had absolutely no kind of collective voice, no collective power, no collective recognition in the marketplace. But but I think because of what what we've been able to to tap into and harness and and promote both through the, you know the government uh, support level and and the market side and and kind of the storytelling, which is so important, which really helps you know distinguish um, these products and and gives consumer an option of saying, okay, um, I can actually do something you know good by through through my purchase of this rather than you know what rather than saying you know what's the least bad, <laughs> you can actually say, oh, I'm doing something good here, and and being able to communicate that and there there is value there where where maybe you know 15 years ago there there wasn't that opportunity. Um, so I, I'd say, you know, I- impact-wise, I, I, I'd look at a, a few different areas. I mean, I'm very connected and, and passionate about the policy side and making sure that these fisheries, which are managed internationally, actually hear their perspective and protect the rights and, um, you know, the, the aspirations of, of these um, fishing communities around the world. Um, in the Indian Ocean, for instance, we, we've started to, to bring together a group, I think, of 19 or 20 coastal countries to work together on shared objectives, to recognize their rights, and to fight for them um, at, at the international management level. And, and we've been quite, quite successful there. You know, in, instead of the status quo where, you know, the, the big distant water fishing nations or the big industrialized countries um, like Spain would, would come in and basically tell everybody how, how things are going to be done, um, the the coastal countries are recognizing their rights, and the one by one fisheries are are um, being represented, and and management measures that are more fair and equitable, and and recognize the the rights and and the needs of these coastal communities to have access to fish, um, for for their food security, for their livelihoods, for the ability to engage in in these international markets has has been a huge shift, and and it's happened in a relatively short amount of time, um, and we're starting to do that same thing in the Atlantic Ocean where you know we're working with one by one fisheries from around that region and helping them um, you know d- d- defend their rights and and protect the tuna fisheries with not just an eye towards you know sustainable exploitation levels biology is one thing but also fair and equitable um, management practices that that recognize their legitimate right to participate in the fisheries and um, you know actually b- build their economies around a sustainable fishery Rather than just giving all the rights and resources to um, the distant water fishing nations and the industrialized nations, so it's it's quite a bit around, um, you know, the the, the fairness and, and equity elements of management that that we've been able to um, have quite a bit of success on the international policy side. On um, kind of the the markets, you know, we're we're seeing a continued growth and in interest and in, and in demand for the one by one fish. So we, we've been able to get some really big partners in recent years, um, uh, committed to, to fisheries in, in Indonesia, for instance. Um, you know, we, we've got a, a whole group that that entire country has a very, very large one by one tuna fishery. And, and we've helped create an umbrella organization to help bring bring um, the voice of that sector to bear on management, um, on working on collective aspects to, to improve the market, improve the quality of those products, connect them to buyers around the world. You know, we're seeing very, very positive re- returns there, both in terms of in, improving the the quality of the fisheries, but and also the the market attention and and the market partners wanting to, you know, have access to that fish and promote that fish and promote those stories. And then, and then I think lastly, impact wise, it's it's on these smaller community fisheries where where we're engaging and helping to to tell the story and empower local fishing communities, and actually, you know, take that holistic approach of improving policy, improving monitoring committing to the science and, and understanding of the fishery, but then also improving, you know, what's happening on the water and with the processing. And that's exactly what we're doing in St. Helena is, is trying to, you know, show that these, these place-based approaches um, with, with, with some investment and some time, or you're actually kind of setting up this, this 
gold standard of how a fishery in an isolated place can really be the gold standard for for how a fishery should operate and supporting its its local fishermen, having a minimum impact on the environment and actually delivering really high quality, um, you know, beautiful tuna products, not just for the local communities, but also for for export markets. And, and you know, that's that's a work in progress. But, you know, it's something that, um, you know, I, I think we'll be able to kind of set this up as a model and, and use this in other places. And, and just talking about the sustainable food movement more generally, Adam, it's a pretty tricky one. You know, we have a lot of high profile environmentalists and conservationists, and they're all calling for different approaches. Some advocate advocate uh, a vegan diet. In, in fact, many do to eliminate suffering of animals as much as possible, whether that's fish or, or, or mammals, um, as well as reducing carbon emissions. And others advocate for more sort of well-managed, sustainable animal and, and fish food sources and, and stocks that contribute to a, a balanced ecosystem. But it's, it's, it's very hard not to know what the right thing to do if, in fact, there is one right thing to do. But I'm just curious to get your thoughts on why keeping fishing alive in the context of the one-by-one one approach is so important. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I th- and, I, you know, I, I think this is a very kind of first world lens on on these issues you know and and it's more, more of a luxury to say like you know what i think i'm i'm not gonna eat eat certain things you know in a, in a lot of places where we work i mean the, you know fish is is the primary component of the diet it's what's available it's what's always been eaten and it's what's the most affordable um so, so it's uh you know you, t- you look at the maldives for instance the average consumption of fish in the maldives is 150 kilos per year per person. I mean, that, that's half a kilo a day. And, it, and I've been there several times, and it, it really is kind of three meals a day. You're, you're having skipjack tuna. And, and it's a, you know, they have a hundred or, you know, different ways to, to serve it up, and it's absolutely delicious. Um, but, but if you were ever to go to the Maldives and say, hey, guess what? I, I think you should only be eating vegetables that, you know, you can't grow on, on your land, but you need to, you know, import them from Australia or, or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's not, I think, I think it's a little bit rude and insensitive to, to the, the actual reality of, of these cultures and uh, the, the reality of what's available to them and what, what should be seen as, as you know, uh, supporting their culture and, and environmentally responsible and sustainable. You know, we, we should be promoting those types of things. And so, so, you know, what I really like to think of sustainability, not, not, just from the lens of the environment, but but it has to be about the people as well. And and there's a nice movement happening right now in the seafood world all around. What what does social responsibility mean? And in recent years, because of, of some some news stories uh, around some major labor abuses in seafood supply chains, you know that's really been the focus. So social responsibility means you know we we don't have slavery. I mean, and that and that's um, I mean that's a start. But but social responsibility also means you know considering the impact on livelihoods and, and food security and gender equality and access to resources. And, and these things are all really well defined um, in, by, by the FAO and the United Nations. And, and it's, it's really about bringing that lens of, of the human side of sustainability to the conversation, which, you know, in, in some places, yes, I think, you know, being vegan and, and not eating animals is, is an option and, and can, it can work. But in most of the world, it can't. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes. I mean, leaving the ethics aside, just practically, we couldn't expect island nations um, or anybody who relies on that as their principal food source to suddenly drop what they've been doing for for millennia and and turn to to something else. Absolutely right. And that now would even suggest that that uh, you know other others out there who are considering you know how their diet can can make a positive conservation. Um, and, or and social benefit is to you know actually seek out products that that are environmentally sustainable but also have a, a social positive associated with them and you know i think you know fair trade is something that you know you see in in coffee and bananas and chocolate around the world and you know they're starting to do fair trade seafood as well and a lot of the tuna fisheries we're working with are going down that road of getting fair trade certified to you know help give that message that you know, these are sustainable, but also having a positive social benefit. And, you know, I I think that, you know, transitioning to that sort of lens around, you know, how you can make a positive 
impact and and you know do do good with your your diet is certainly something to consider. Well, I think that's the perfect segue to chat to and, and hear about Julie's story. So we're, we're super fortunate to have Julie join us directly from St. Helena to tell us her story and bring the foundation's work to life. Uh, so before we talk about fishing, Julie, I actually read the Wikipedia page about St. Helena because as you alluded to in your introduction, I was one of those people that had never heard of it. And um, the history of your island is absolutely fascinating and it looks like the most beautiful place. So uh, perhaps you could uh, start off by giving us uh, or, or painting the picture of St. Helena for the listeners. Wow. Gosh, what a big ask. Okay, Santa Lena then, as you said earlier, is um, only 47 square miles in size. Um, it's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And for many, many years, um, we were known as one of the world's most isolated islands. Um, and it continued that way until about 18 months, two years ago, uh, when our international airport opened. So we know what it is like to feel cut off from the rest of the world, I guess. Uh, we depended on uh, our Royal Mail ship that called here on, um, every three weeks. And at times, it's it, when it went to the UK, which stopped quite a few years ago, we were out supplies um, for two, two months, three months sometimes. But more recently, it was every three weeks. Um, so life for us here on St. Helena has changed quite a lot with the airport opening. We now have um, a flight arriving once a week and for our summer months, twice a week. So it's been a massive change for us. So the island is approximately, for those, when I say Atlantic Ocean, it's quite a big ocean, 1,900 kilometers west of Angola or the Namibian border. And we are about 950 miles due south of the equator. So the nice thing about St. Helena is that um, our climate is mild and equable temperatures all year round. For those who probably know um, or heard of St. Helena, it's probably predominantly because of Napoleon Bonaparte, the uh, French emperor that was exiled here in 1815 until his death in 1821. So a lot of people recognize St. Helena because of that. St. Helena is unique in so many different ways. Um, isolation was one of it, um, but we are one of our key claims to fame, I guess, is being home to over 500 endemic species of flora, fauna, fish, and invertebrate. So that's something we can be really proud of. And being a, a British Overseas Territory, we make up for one third of the endemic species within the British Overseas Territories. Um, saying if 30 of those endemics are flowering plants, grass, ferns, and hybrid. So yeah, we're quite a little jewel here stuck in the South Atlantic. Now, fish and coffee are St. Helena's largest exports. Could you share a little bit more light on the importance of fishing and the one-by-one -one philosophy to the community and the culture from your perspective? Okay, so um, St. Helena has been exporting fish for quite a number of years, but our method, our one-by-one -one fishing method, has been going on for decades. Um, and, we, you know, it's been a traditional method. I think we, we can proudly say it's traditional. The option to use the alternative fishing methods that Adam spoke about, long lining and persaining, they've always existed here. It was never that you couldn't do it. Um, but I think because of the the size of a fishery um, and the economic climate of St. Helena, we've never really dabbled in that for any long periods of time. And as I said, our four generation fishermen, they've always used a one by one fishing technique. So um, being involved with IPLNF has just been I guess something that should have happened many, you know, as soon as um, IPLNF was formed, it seems only right that they're the right partner for St. Helena, simply because the one by one fishing method is what we use. Um, now that we've got um, international market with the ability to get fresh fish out on uh, on the plane, that's obviously a new thing for us. And yes, we are reaching more improved and enhanced markets. 
But obviously, we are now attracting a lot more attention as well. And even though tourism is a wonderful thing for us, we'd like to see people coming and um, being a part of our culture and seeing what St. Helena has to offer. We need to be also protective of what we have. So obviously, now that, as um, Adam said, all different species are on different levels of um, concern in the world, we have quite a good yellowfin tuna population here, and we've also got Big Eye and the Skipjack, and at times the Albacore. And I know there's a lot of interest from um, international parties and within our own local governments that probably think this could be an, an economic driver for us, whereby we could um, exploit the fishery a lot more. But that is why being partnered with IPLNF and being a project manager for IPLNF, it is so key for me to educate and raise awareness of the fact that the fishery we have can do just as much economical um, benefits for St. Helena um, and its future because we are looking at the social impact as well and the environmental impact. Um, I think St. Helena has made such huge, taken such huge steps in the last few years with the help of IPLNF and of course our fishermen being um, conservationists, believe it or not, like Adam also said, because they're out there on a daily basis and they know what climate change can do to their ability to catch fish. They know how dependent we are on other species within the ocean to keep the tuna fishery um, attractive and you get the abundance coming through. St. Helena also, from the science program that we work with, um, it's, be, it's been proven recently as well that we have quite a big residential tuna stock here. Um, so we need to be very careful how we... Um, increase the number of vessels that operate within our, our fishing zone. Similarly to what um, guards, what happens in the Maldives, fish is the largest protein provider for the island of St. Helena. So tuna is one, is something that is seen on many plates on St. Helena on a daily basis. So we must make sure that that is um, secured for the future as well. So food security for us is definitely an important part with our tuna fishery. I'm curious about that protection of your of your oceans and your residential stock. Perhaps you can tell us about the, the marine protected area around St. Helena and the significance of that to the local fisheries. St. Helena signed up to being a marine protected area some three years ago. And there's a lot of work to do now to ensure that we continue with what is expected of a marine protected area. When we talk of St. Helena, I talk about our tuna fishery, but and I also talked about our endemics, but our waters are teeming in beautiful marine life. So we, even though we want to share that with um, the people of the island and also people visiting, we want to also make sure that that is there for future generations. So we have the majestic whale sharks and oh my word, St. Helena is, has got quite a lot of um, support and awareness and people attractions now for St. Helena because of the whale shark population, because we've got something that is quite unique again, because we've got male and female whale sharks showing up here in quite big numbers. I mean, when they're here in the seasonal time, you can see 50 to 60 whale sharks uh, swimming around the island of St. Helena. When I said swimming around the island, I'm talking literally three to four miles in around the island. So it's so easy to access them and to be able to watch them in their natural habitat. So that's the whale sharks, but we've also got other um, shark species. Dolphins, they're seen here all the time. We've got the manta rays as well. So the, 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 there's also the turtles. So there's such a wide variety. So we need the policies to make sure that people know and understand exactly what they can and can't do when um, using our marine environment so that we can continue to enjoy um, the, the St. Helena marine environment. And, and could I jump in here with, with something about that? And, and I think what, what makes St. Helena special, but but not necessarily unique, is that we're, we're thinking of, of working with these fishing communities 
in a way that goes hand in hand with with protecting marine resources, with protecting whale sharks, with protecting turtles. And, and, and I think a lot of people historically think that, oh, you need to have a marine protected area. That means no fishing. Well, you can do, t you know, some fishing um, as long as it's in harmony with protecting the sharks and protecting the whales. And, you know, I think, you know, that this is kind of a, a, a new approach, but it makes such sense. You're, you're supporting tourism and a blue economy. Um, but also the local kind of low impact fishery. And, and St. Helena is the, the perfect model for, for how that, that can look. Yeah, and I think forward thinking countries around the world that have something unique and valuable like what St. Helena has are starting to recognize, or at least some of them are, are starting to recognize that they have a real natural asset for lack of a better word um that needs to be protected or that will be lost it'll just it'll just vanish and that's something that can really be enjoyed by so many uh humans as well as different species for years to come yes it is uh, and you know it it's disheartening at times to know that we still need to advocate that because as you said a lot of people are becoming more responsible now and understand what sustainability is all about but there are those within key positions at times that could actually sway that the next way. So we, we are constantly advocating and going into schools and having to do radio interviews and programs and videos to constantly remind them of what we have. I think for St. Helena, the biggest challenge I am faced with is that um, because we've never really done any of the destructive methods on a large scale, we need the assistance like with IPLNF and other um, sustainable people that are pushing for sustainability. We need to see the reality of what destructive methods do so that we don't have the few that could, um, what can I, what's the word I'm looking for, that could potentially sway the majority in thinking that, you know, ah, if we can catch it, a massive amount of tonnage this year, um, look at what the economic gain would be when actually slow and steady wins the race because we've got a, a fishery well into the future. And that is the biggest challenge, I think, that I face here with St. Helena and understanding that um, the fishery before the last two years, I'd say, was more about quantity over quality, where now we are trying to change the mindset, and believe it or not, the commercial fishermen get it. Um, we want quality over quantity. I also want to touch on the traceability point um, and how that plays out in reality. And Adam touched on that already. Uh, and it sounds like that's sort of more at the on the regulation side where you're, uh, a country, say, like the UK would say, we need to know exactly which ship this came from so that we can trace back the sustainability of that particular fish. Um, do you see a world in where that traceability extends all the way through to the consumer? And say, you know, somebody like myself could go to the, the shelf in the supermarket and pick up a can and be like, this one, this tuna comes from St. Helena. Will that ever happen? Joy, I would say that's already happening. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with, um, you know, our, our partners and our fisheries is to help tell that story. You know, not not only that this fish is coming from St. Helena, but this fish is can't coming from uh, Wayland's boat or Benjamin's boat or or, you know, um, actually down to the vessel and telling the story of the fishermen. And through technology platforms, through QR codes, um, through enhanced kind of full chain traceability and even block the blockchain, um, the, these um, kind of, you know, futuristic sounding things are, are actually already already a reality in, in some fisheries. We, we work with uh, a fishery on the west coast of North America that, that's catching albacore tuna um, one by one style. And and the the tins of tuna, you, you can you can look at the QR code or, or the um, the code on it and look it up online. And it'll tell you, yeah, which which vessel caught it was and 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 um, we're working with some of these systems to, you know, tell a little story about about the fishermen or about the fishery. Um, and because I, I think that's that's that is a positive selling point. So, you know, pay, pay you know, start to pay attention and certainly not across the board. Um, but for those products that want to set themselves apart and, and have a bit more storytelling associated with them, um, you know, that that type of thing is certainly possible. And we're trying to work with some of our market partners on on some of those systems. 
That's super cool. I actually heard recently somebody describe sort of the the sort of restaurant experience of the future where you'd sit down to have a nice fish dinner and on the menu would be say the QR code of the of the meal that you're about to have and you'd be able to scan it and somehow through the magical blockchain it would come up on your phone with all the people that have been involved in the supply chain of getting that meal onto your plate um, including the sort of sustainability metrics uh, of that meal um, and I just think that would be so super cool if that could start to actually come to life. Yeah, it's going in that direction. And, and how cool would it be yeah, to, to scan the QR code and sit, you know, be able to pull up a, a picture or that film of the St. Helena fishery? I mean, I mean, that, that I think that's that's where the, the future is. And, and again, helping to further set apart these these products with a positive story. Pe- people want to feel good about their about their food and about their impact they're making, especially kind of the younger generation. So, I mean, this is the perfect opportunity to, to tie into that. So just to add what St. Helena has achieved thus far, obviously, yes, Joy, that's exactly where we would like to go because we're doing it locally already. So if you um, purchase a piece of uh, a, a tuna stick um, from the supermarket or directly from the processing plant or wherever it is from, there is codes on there already and you can call the processing plant and they'll tell you exactly what time that fish was landed. Um, It will also tell you which boat caught it and because there's only one or two uh, fishermen on each boat um, in the inshore boat, it will pretty much tell you who, which um, fishermen caught it. Now, we are working in collaboration with some of the restaurants here on St. Helena, whereby that is something we want to do, whereby they can have um, their fish meal on a plate, and we need to try and encourage the fishermen to do it. But no doubt, I'll I'll be one, because I want to, it to, to happen so quickly, uh, whereby the fishermen can tell you the story about how they caught that fish that day. So it, it can be the video of exactly how it was caught, where it was caught from while it's on your plate. So if you want to see traceability in action, come visit St. Helena. That, that is definitely next level traceability. Adam, turning to you, you've clearly spent a lot of time thinking about sustainable fisheries and, and of course studying marine ecosystems if you could have one message truly heard by every human on the planet who eats tuna or fish for that matter, what would it be? I think it would be to have a serious think of, of what you mean by sustainability. And, and I think the future of sustainability needs to be a, a hybrid of the environment and the human element. At least in my experience and, and seeing how various uh, consumers or even supermarkets or, or um, you know, seafood buyers have been thinking about sustainability in, in the past 20 years. It's been only about the environment. And until we shift to, to think about the, the social impact that our, our seafood choices are, are having, then, then we're not really ever going to have a sustainable future or healthy ocean. Places like, like St. Helena, <clears throat> where it's, it's so clear, you know, the fishermen are the biggest champions of sustainability and a lot of the other fisheries we work with. That's the exact same story. And it's not rocket science. It makes so much sense, but it's, it's going back to the basics and, and really promoting responsible stewardship and, and the stewards and the actual people who are, um, you know, involved in the most intimately with, with these fisheries and with these ecosystems and, and making them the, the champions of sustainability rather than, you know, either saying the fishermen are, are destroying the resource, which certainly is the case in, in, in some, you know, very, you know, these large scale industrial fisheries. But to, to seek out these fisheries with a story and with a positive impact and until we can have, you know, awareness and, and demand for these types of, of products across the board, we're going to continue to struggle with with sustainable fisheries around the world. Just at our level, a consumer level or anybody listening, how how can we support the work that IPNLIF do? Well, there's, you know, that you're buying decisions. I think I think that's, you know, from the consumer's perspective, uh, if if you're somebody who eats tuna or would um, or are intrigued to try tuna after hearing this, you know, l- go to the shop and look for tuna that, that that says pull in line or hand line. You know, it's really important for any consumer um, when they're making a seafood decision to actually, you know, if they don't know or if it's not clear, 
to ask where that where that fish came from and how it was caught. Find that one by one caught tuna, and and if you can't find it, you know, feel free to email me or look up the foundation. That usually, you know, there's there's a place where where it's available, and in, in uh, certainly in Australia, U.S., U.K., um, Europe. So yeah, and feel feel free to to get in touch with us, but. Yeah, start thinking. You know, making those buying decisions that that are having those um, that are that are supporting these environmental and, and social positives um, is is certainly, um, I think, the the best place to start. Where can people find you guys? Sure. So so website www.ipnlf.org uh, or or with that same tag, we are on um, all the social media sites on on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. So so. Come, come and find us. Come support what we do. We always love to put cool footage up there of of the fisheries, of the fishermen, of the products that are out there in, in different geographies. And in fact, Adam, just to add, I spent quite a bit of time researching for this podcast and spent a bit of time on the website, on the IPNLF website. And uh, I just found it quite interesting. You've got a whole lot of stories on there. You've also got a section of your members so people can look up, you know, what the actual brands are that are actually sourcing fish from, from one pole, one line sources. And also there's a really cool map that shows what these sources actually are and what, where these fish, fisheries are and how many tons of fish that they're actually um, fishing out of the ocean each year and all that sort of thing. It's, it's quite a cool website to look around if anybody's interested to, to learn more about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think um, you know, lots of resources on on the technical side, on on just trying to kind of put the simple messages out there, and also for our market partners to to highlight uh, the different geographies and the different uh, businesses and brands that that people might be able to see regardless of where in the world they're located. So try, trying to be a one one stop shop for for all there is to know about the one by one tuna fisheries of the world. Well, we'll be sure to put those links in the show notes for anybody wanting to check that out. Adam, Julie, thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast. It has been really eye-opening and enlightening. Yeah, thank you. It's it's great to be part of this uh, this conversation and, and getting into the, I think the, the getting into the broader sustainability um, conversation, which which oftentimes you know we're just in our little fish world, but th- this is really exciting for us too. So thank you. Just um, also to add as a footnote um, is the Saint Helena tuna website as well, which is very much more about our Saint Helena tuna, and that is st for Saint Helena tuna.co.uk. If you want to add that into it, you'll learn more about our fishery here and the work that we're doing to promote our fishery and sustain it. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Julie. I didn't realize that, that there was a website. That's perfect. We'll definitely add those to the, the show notes as well. Brilliant. Thank you. What did you think of that episode? So much to think about from this one. We hope you found it as thought-provoking as we did. We'd love to hear your views. Will you eat tuna going forward? Will you support tuna sourced from Poland line fisheries? What do you think about being able to trace the entire supply chain that worked together to get food onto your plate? Let us know on the socials or over on the show notes for this episode. In the meantime, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.